Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. Hello and welcome to another podcast from Disruptive HR where we're talking to people who are just doing things a little bit differently in the HR world. And today I'm really delighted to be with Kiva Kiogan, who is Chief People Officer, and Alex Miel, Director of People and Organisation at Money Supermarket Group. Hi, both of you. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. Mate. Hi, yeah. Lucy. So, uh, Alex, you've just run a marathon. I have, yes. <laughs> not, as, not as quick as some, but I have. And I'm, yeah, I'm so, still basking in the glory of it. Yeah, quite right. So, you feeling all right? I'm feeling good, thank yeah, you. Yeah, excellent. Have you run a marathon? I Kinder? certainly have not. <laughs> but I did cheer on my husband, who ran two marathons in the last two weeks. So, wow. I'm a good marathon supporter, <laughs> but never a marathon runner. Are you not getting a bit tired of going to marathons and cheering? Yeah, a little bit. A, a little, little bit. But it's all good. So I know that you're doing some great stuff, which is why I wanted to come along and talk to you today. But uh, just to dive into it uh, in a little bit. But first of all, what I want to do is just, Kiva, can you just tell us a little bit about the company, just in case there's people out here listening who haven't heard of you, and uh, just give us some of the kind of key stats around, you know, numbers of people, etc., where you're based, just to, so people get a sense of the say the size and scale. Of course. So Money Supermarket Group is a constituent of the FTSE 250. We're a digital business, a UK digital business founded about 20 years ago. But we're Money Supermarket Group comprises multiple consumer brands that you would recognize. The obvious one being Money Supermarket, the price comparison business. We also own a travel business, Travel Supermarket. And we also own um, Money Saving Expert, which is the UK's largest online financial journalism website, which was founded by Martin Lewis, who's very well known as a Money Saving Expert. Um, we also own a, a business called Decision Technologies, which we acquired last year. It's part of our strategy to bring price comparison to the user and they provide B2B price comparison services. So altogether that comprises Money Supermarket Group. We are about 750, 800 people in the UK and we're split across three locations. So the bulk of our people are actually in the northwest of um, the UK, we have an office in Yulo, which is in North Wales. And that's actually where the business, the money supermarket business was founded. So we have a long legacy of, of being there around Chester. Um, then we have um, our head office here in London. And we have our newest office, which we're in the process of establishing. That's where Alex is based in Manchester. And that's where we're hubbing most of our product and technology resources. So we're split across those, those three locations. The decision technologies business that we acquired last year is also based here in London. It's just down the road from us in Holborn. So that's, that's the size of the business. Brilliant. And, and how did you get this role? How long have you been here? Just give us a little bit about your HR background. Yep. So I've been here about coming up on 18 months now. 
Um, I moved back to the UK. So before I was doing this role, I spent about five years working in Germany in a startup. And prior to that, I spent um, five or six years at Google in a HR generalist role. And before that, my background was as a management consultant for my sins. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, how, how I got the role was, you know, probably a, a combination of having had some consulting and change and transformation experience, having worked in some, you know, more leading edge digital tech businesses, both big and small. And that really fitted with the profile of person they were looking for to help steer Money Supermarket Group through this next phase of, of, of transformation as business. Brilliant, thank you. And Alex, what about you? What's your background and what's your role here now? So <clears throat> my role is Director of People and Organisation, which is essentially leading the people partnering, the learning and development and the employee experience teams. Um, I've been here about two and a half years and joined from Pearson. So I've been, I was at Pearson for nearly seven years working across a variety of their businesses, most recently in their digital education area. So that's a kind of publishing house, isn't it? Publishing, but we also, um, it was anything that was all things to do with English language learning. So that was digital English language learning as well as book textbooks, et cetera, and bricks and mortar. Um, that was my last role there. And I, I joined Money Supermarket Group. Um, one of the main things I was brought on to do was to um, scale up Manchester and transform Manchester, which is, as Kiva alluded to, is our tech and product engineering hub, which we had some great success in last year and we're continuing to, to grow now. Um, let's say I lead the, I lead the people partner team L&D employee experience, which is the way that we're trying to look at how we work with our colleagues and make their, their lives pretty, as, as seamless as possible while they're with us. Really, so. Brilliant. So we're going to start with the strategic piece. If I can come to you, Kiva, and, and just... Um, just give us a feel for some of the, the big uh, strategic priorities and how the people agenda plays into that. So the kind of things that you're worrying about and, and how you're trying to do it perhaps in a slightly different way. Of course. So our, the reinvention of this business, which is was how we talk about the, the strategy for Money Supermarket Group, is very much around the experience that consumers have when they engage with us and that is really about making the the whole customer journey as painless and proactive as possible um, and we talk about it being personalized painless and proactive and that's the consumer experience that we're we're looking at for those who who come and engage with us as consumers but actually that's exactly mirrors the sort of employee experience that we also um, want to think about. So the, where the business is at is that there's been a very successful, very successful business. However, the wider landscape is changing. And even though we were once a very disruptive business, we're equally at risk of being disrupted um, as new technologies and new ways in which people engage with price comparisons start to happen. So we took a bit of a strategic look at the business a couple of years ago and said that we really needed to rediscover that, that spirit of innovation. It's in the DNA of the business, but it may have got a little bit lost over time. And that's as quite, a, that can happen, can't it? Very you common, know? right? Because you have great success yeah. with that initial innovation, and then it becomes a story of scaling that, maturing yeah. that, yeah. growing that consumer base, growing the business, maturing the business. And some of the things that come with maturing a business, such as taking it public, um, and of course, we're in the financial services space, so we're a regulated business. So as you mature a business and you become more comfortable um, 
with the need to, to regulate that business, there's always this balance of maturing plus, it, you know, plus how do you continue to, to find that innovative spirit? So I think that's a little bit of, of, of where the business was at. So now we're very focused on transforming it. And when we talk about reinventing the business, it's not just about that consumer and product experience that we provide, it's also about the culture of the business. So we talk about cultural reinvention and when we do that, we say that we're trying to make the culture more inclusive and more innovative. Um, and my view is that inclusion comes before innovation, that that's a virtuous circle. And the things that we do to make the culture here more inclusive are the things that are going to fuel the innovation that we need to, and was to that, drive business that concept success. of inclusivity coming before innovation um, diversity of experience, perspective, uh, etc., driving better decision making. Was that something that was readily accepted by the senior leadership here, or was that something that you had to convince them of? I don't think it was that hard to convince. So I think once we, you know, when I when I came in, that that appetite around diversity and inclusion was already there, and that appetite for a more inclusive culture was already there. I think maybe I helped a little bit with making that linkage. Yeah. That that those are not two separate things. Yeah. I mean, I think the culture and values of this business were quite strong and that value around diversity and inclusion and that desire to see more inclusive behaviors already existed in this business. The the culture that we have and the values of the people that that work here are already quite aligned to that. The demographic of our workforce, which is a younger demographic is also where you start to see that desire for change in but businesses. But you perhaps help them with, we want to be inclusive, to be innovative, as opposed to inclusive and innovative. Yes, yeah. maybe, maybe. <clears throat> I think we had a big focus, didn't we, on um, inclusivity and diversity within technologies. We were scaling up Manchester, and we probably needed to look more widely, and rather than just focusing on our tech and product engineering hubs, look across the whole of the business and let the business understand the importance of that as well. It's just what we did within technology. So, Brilliant. So... Inclusive and innovative, or to be innovative, what are some of the strategic strands that, that you've been taking forward then to, to make that a reality? So around the, the topic of diversity and inclusion, when, when I came in, the, there had been you know, a number of conversations around what that agenda was and how we would move it forward. And as Alex alludes to, there were pockets of the organisation where that was working really very well. You know, in the engineering, the, the product and, and tech world, people were very aware of those, um, those workforces tending to bias a particular way. So as, as they were scaling, making sure that we were thoughtful about that, that was, that was already happening. What wasn't necessarily happening was a coherent and consistent strategy that straddled the entire group. So that's a piece of work that, that we did last year. And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as saying, if you're committed to this, what are the resources that you're putting against it? So one of the first things we did was um, create a position to lead diversity and inclusion and dedicate somebody in my management team and the people leadership team whose remit is around that topic. Um, that's a sign of commitment. You're actually putting resource and energy and effort mm. against it. 
And along with that was budget, because you recognise that that kind of cultural change isn't something that one person in the people team is going to be able to drive. And I had, through previous experience, worked really successful with the concept of resource groups and employee resource groups, who, if set up in the right way and truly empowered, and when I say truly empowered, that means you also give them budget to do the things, um, can really help affect that change in culture. So that's how we set it up. We appointed uh, a leader for diversity and inclusion as part of the people leadership team. She's helped establish employee-led resource groups that are setting their own agenda and really figuring out what's the right things to do to make the culture more inclusive, but are empowered in the sense that they also get delegated budget to make those things a reality. Can you give us an example of a, of a are they interest groups or demographically based groups? It was pretty interesting what happened because in my experience previously, when in, in a previous company when we did that, they became they were demographic groups spun yeah. up quite quickly. Yeah. So, you know, women's yeah. a women's network group yeah. or an LGBTQI network group or whatever. And I think we've all sort of had those experiences. What was super interesting that happened here was they they sort of moved beyond that so the very first group that spun up was a group it was an interest group but it was around the topic of mental health they felt that mental health was one of the biggest inclusion issues in the workplace it was something that just sort of organically gathered quite a lot of momentum so the first employee resource group that really found its feet here last year is a group called thrive um, and they exist to further um, improve the inclusivity when it comes to mental health awareness and your mental health at work. And with their budget, the kinds of things that they did last year was lobby for and find good spaces in each of our offices where they could create a, a well-being and a mental health room. So if you're, you're struggling at work, where can you go? And in those rooms, they put resources and other things, but they also created very sort of calming spaces to be if you needed to be somewhere. Um, they also funded training for mental health first aiders. So across each of our three offices, we have people who wear special, you know, they have a coloured lanyard so they can be identified. And they did some quite, you know, in intensive two or three days worth of training to be mental, mental health first aiders. Um, this year, they're really focused on using their budget to, to train and educate managers to yeah. recognize issues around mental health in their teams and support managers in dealing with mental health issues in the workplace. So that, that was the first group that, that spun up. And any other areas where you're focusing um, on the, the, the kind of the culture of uh, innovation and getting people to rediscover some of the, uh, the, the pace and the energy and the risk taking that perhaps they, that had meant the business was so successful in the first place? Yes, I, I think that the, um, we've, we've, we've done some, some interesting um, pilots around that, that innovative way of, of working and looking for sources of innovation and inspiration through, through different things. So one of the things that, um, and again, it's a bit linked to inclusion and, and innovation, but recently our product leadership team and product management team held a workshop. We have just engaged with the Prince's Trust as our CSO partner for the group. 
and entered into a new partnership with them. And it's very much around the theme of mental health and money management, because those are two of the biggest issues facing young people today. And as an organisation, we're really interested in money management and actually mental yeah. health, that of our own employees, but as well as, as well as that. I thought it was really interesting because when we partnered with them, we started thinking about, well, you know, the usual stuff that you do in these corporate partnerships. How do we provide work experience? How do we provide some employability skills? But the product leadership team were working with this concept of developing empathy. So when you're developing products for consumers, how do you get into that consumer mindset? How do you develop empathy for the consumer and the experience that they're going through? And they actually, you when, when they were, were doing, and that is as a fuel to innovative thinking, right? How do we really sort of understand and have more empathy so they used the partnership with the Prince's Trust to actually bring in young people on Prince's Trust programs to try and understand how young people experience our kinds of products, how they, what are the things that are important to them when they think about um, price comparison and the sorts of topics that they're interested in. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's just an, it, it's another example of how inclusion you know, being a more socially responsible business, having strategic partnerships with charities that are aligned to, um, that have a very sort of similar vision and work in the same space, can become a very tangible thing that from a business perspective, um, it's not just a nice to do, but we're getting yeah. real value out of it. And that. I think, you know, the, the whole um, traditional CSR agenda is being increasingly questioned in terms of where there are is where there is a direct synergy between the CSR, the char char charity of choice, and the actual business that you do, as yeah. opposed to charity bike rides or whatever. Then, then actually, it, it just makes so much more sense, and it becomes easier to do, and you just go with the grain rather than it being an addition uh, yep. to, to to the normal workload. The only thing I'd add to that is we are working closely with our internal comms team, which is also part of Keep as well, to help the business understand what we're doing and how we're, we're looking at things in a more innovative way so that it doesn't feel like it's just the domain of the product team or the yeah. domain yeah. of the marketing yeah. team, for example. So everyone across the business understands that. And it, by bringing something like the CSR um, initiative to life, you can see that it helps fuel innovation in a different way. So you, if you're in, I don't know, customer service, you've got just as much opportunity to think innovatively than you have, as I say, if you're in the product team. So that helps as well. We're doing that through our internal comms team as well. So. Brilliant. Thank you. What about um, just changing the focus slightly? I know that you've, um, you've been quite active in using things like uh, Culture Amp mm. to help measure engagement levels and um, to, to really understand that you um, identify changes that need to be made that, that is data-driven and insight-driven. Um, can you talk to me about, about that, Alex? Would that be something that I think it's in your yeah, kind of I mean, remit, isn't it? Obviously, engagement surveys are, are nothing new. And I've been in businesses where there's been regular engagement surveys and they're just some data at the end of a six-month or 12-month cycle. But we, we do try and take that data as, as really um, qualitative to understand exactly what the business is telling us. And instead of suddenly thinking, All right, do you know what the business is saying? X, we have to do Y. We, we've, we've got data over a significant period of time, so the last four, we do them every six months, the last four, for example, that would say the one thing that consistently comes up is that people aren't, don't feel that they're in control of managing their own careers, they don't feel they're in control of their own development. So normally what you'd find in some businesses is they get, people think, right, we need to, we need to um, try and throw more money at the training development budget, so something quite basic. Um, but what, what we did is we worked with the business, for, we took that data and we went and spoke to the business and tried to understand what would work for them. 
And one of the things that the learning development team, as part of my um, function, it worked with the business on was was creating a, um, a suite of products under a banner called Freedom to Grow to give the ability for the individual in the business, our colleagues in the business, to own their own development. As I say, rather than just saying, here's some training, we gave people the opportunity to do that. And under that banner, we created a few things. One was something called the Freedom Pot, which we're particularly uh, proud of because it landed incredibly well, which is that everyone has, within the business has the ability to spend £300 a year on, on development of their choice. And the only remit we have on that is that it should help that person bring the whole self to work. So again, it goes with the inclusion aspect as well as being innovative. And we found that people have, you know, either try to learn new skills, but a lot of people also try to spend their money or have spent their money on wellbeing products to help them whilst they're at work. So we found that's been really, really successful. And do they just have complete freedom as in they don't have to get approval for they, it or? They don't have to get approval. We have, um, we have very, very few guidelines on it. I've got to be honest, there are a couple of guidelines. You can't just spend it on absolutely anything, um, like, I don't know, family holiday. For example, but you can spend it on, on on pretty much a wide range of things, and 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 it's giving people a real opportunity. And what people are then doing is coming back and either doing uh, video blogs or, or writing about them, what, why they why it's helping them and why it's helping them within work and why it's helping them be uh, with their own development, which of course is having a good knock on effect across the business. But no, there's there's no authority. I mean, I think it, it was it was a it's, it was a, it's a small thing, but it was quite a good cultural yeah. shift to say. Spend it on whatever you want, right? Whatever is learning and growth for you right now, we're not going mm. to prescribe what, what that is. Yeah. It was a good cultural shift for the organisation that maybe is a little bit more used to some approval and sign-off and so on. I'm quite happy to share that I spent mine attending a stand-up comedy course for oh a weekend. <laughs> oh, I mean... Forget the marathon. No, 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 Forget the marathon. That is, I am so much awe. It was I've not, I've not seen the output though yet. So. Yeah, I know. The point is, I'm still not funny, so it didn't work. Um, I have not. I've not I become meant, I've more not engaging. Not funny, <laughs> I haven't become enough. more engaging. I haven't become funnier. I think the logic was that you know there are some skills that they teach you in that that are extremely helpful for delivering more engaging um, talks and, and and speaking at work. And actually, the thing that I did learn from it, and you're right, I haven't done a good enough job, is the ability to really edit down to the core. And that's what comes from developing punchlines in stand-up comedy. You know, what's a setup punchline, setup punchline, yeah. and about getting that ratio right? There's a the science of it. Who knew? I saw, um, <laughs> I saw Ricky Gervais speak about his art of comedy, and he said... Yeah, it's kind of, you know, 20% brilliance and talent and 80% and editing. Yes. He said, he said, it's like taking, you just take this big bit of paper and you fold it in half and fold it in half and fold it in half and fold, until you cannot fold it anymore. And that's the gem. And that's the, that's the thing that's funny. And so it was, all joking aside, very much aligned to a personal development need that I have, which is about becoming as succinct and on point as possible in some of my communication. And somebody had once said to me, that's what you learn in stand-up comedy. Wow. So that's what I went and did for a weekend. Plus the other reason I did it was to role model that actually pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because we had to do a five minute You've got set to do a blog in a pub <laughs> at in a, the oh end with some people from outside who were mostly kind, family and friends of the people <gasps> oh on the course. God. But it is it is singularly one of the most yeah. challenging Let's things. Let's say that venue wasn't publicised. <laughs> <laughs> I did not tell the team. I couldn't have come. No, 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 that's up. too much. That is too much. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so um, this is going to sound really uh, boring stuff now, isn't it? You know, moving away from that. But um, so 
Culture Ramp is something that you use. Mm. You also have used the Enborder app, I think, yes, which you've heard me rave about before. Um, but I really want to hear uh, you tell the story of kind of how you've used it and 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 just one of the case studies as well because mm. I think there's um, there's a couple in a couple of real gems in there. I know there's one that touched your heart. Yeah, places. there so, is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the purpose found in Border was we'd worked as I say we did, one of the main things we needed to do just to set the scene, live it up to the punchline was. Um, that we, we needed to scale our Manchester office. So um, when I joined, we had 10 permanent people in there and some contractors. We had to prove that Manchester worked to be able to recruit in there, recruit a, a tech, a tech and product um, roles in there. And we were successful in being able to say that we were able to recruit. What we were then given was the task to scale that up to 150 people within 12 months, which is, which is no small feat um, when we were relatively new into that marketplace. We worked very, very hard on creating a really strong employer brand within the technology function so that we could be, um, front up at uh, yeah. meetups, etc., and really talk about who we were as a technology organisation. Well, we found that that was really working to get people in, sorry, to get them offered, but they weren't actually landing as successfully. So when they started, it was perhaps a little too chaotic. They weren't getting a consistent experience. They weren't getting a good experience, yeah. whatever, whatever that may be. Um, so we looked around for... Um, a, a solution to that. We wanted a, a, a pretty decent tech solution to that, but not one that was overtly complex. So Emborder came across as, a, a, they were really good to work with, I do have to say that, they, they do listen to what your needs are and they do help you there, but Emborder is a good uh, bridge between offer and day one, um, and it's a text-based... And that's the dead zone, that's, isn't it? Is it? Especially you know, three months to yeah, try and kill. Exactly, you know, you kind of, the, the hiring person is going, it's nothing to do with me now, I've done my bit, they've signed on the mm. dotted line. Especially if you're working with an agency, and I mean that in a nice way, because yeah, obviously they they've done their the job, minute. they're yours now, but the, the hiring manager is like, oh, well, I, they're not mine yet because they haven't walked through the door, mm. and you've got that no-man's-land period that we yeah. often see, either people starting to have doubts or getting other offers, or so... It, the Emborder app for you was the bit that it was that kind of that yeah, no it was, man's it was, land. Yeah, it was that nervous. And, and as you say, certainly the nervousness about if people were counter-offered or decided to, to look elsewhere within those three months because we were bringing in so many people. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, it's a, it's a text, it's an opportunity for the hiring manager and the individual to communicate via text. But that sounds quite simple. But what we do is we're able to, you're able to push video content through. You're able to push a lot of information around the business to keep that person engaged. So in day one, they, they know a lot. But the more personal side is perhaps more interesting side. So we, we threw in a few questions just to find out about people's interests, which I don't think is listened to enough these days, no. to be perfectly honest. Um, and we also asked a question, which is what your, what's your go-to snack at 3 p.m.? <laughs> and, and I was recruiting someone, and I wanted to kind of be a bit of a role model for what we should do with this. So we, I, we were, I was recruiting into the TA team, um, which was in my room at, the, at that point. And the person we were recruiting said that she was particularly into cooking in South America. So... I wanted her to come in and realise that we were the, the type of organisation that listened. Um, and so on day one, she arrived to um, uh, travel through South America, recipe book, a, a really decent, I have to say myself, bottle of Malbec. And also <laughs> her go-to snack was pizza rolls, which is quite a unique one. So I did spend a ridiculous pizza amount rolls. of time schlepping through <laughs> Manchester City Centre trying to find them. I got the next best thing. But what I did see that when she came in, A, because she was going to be representing us as a talent acquisition person, was just that, that, that moment of it's not just, you're not just coming into a, I don't know, a pen and a notebook, you're coming into the fact that the managers listen to you and, yeah. and you're really making that, yeah. that first... And as you say, you. the actual gift bit is, is almost the irrelevant yeah, bit. It's, it's the, the fact it's that the you're thinking. asking questions, you're wanting to find out about them, as opposed to seeing onboarding as a broadcast mm. period where you're just telling them stuff. Yeah, and it, I mean, don't be wrong, it's, it's not without its challenges. As we scale up Manchester, you, we found that um, 
some managers are recruiting multiple people, so it, you, we almost got a little bit of fatigue for them to yeah. continuously go through that process when they know the process back to front, they know the questions they have to ask. So again, where Inborder came in is that we work with them very closely to streamline it for a manager that had, worked, that had recruited more than one person. Um, and um, therefore, it was because they, they were still engaged in the process. But one of the best, if you want to use data um, to, to back up how successful it was, is that we have a 90 plus percent engagement from new starters, which Emboarders benchline something like 70 odd. So we're, we, it really works for us within that community. And of course, it's quite close knit community, the tech community up in Manchester. So anything that get, you know that talks about it in, in that way really works. And then we have to make sure we continue in that vein from day one onwards. Otherwise, it's it's just day one, but it does help very well. Fantastic. What One of the things that I know you've been trying to do is to help the HR team move to more of a product mindset. Mm. So again, something that I bang on a lot about <laughs> is moving away from purely service-based in mindset to one which is more product-focused because we know that it helps you think about end-user, it helps you think about agile product design, uh, it helps you think about product shelf life, all of those good things. That, um, that that service mentality can um, can can um, get in the way of. What what have you been doing to help the team move to a more product mindset? And what does that what does that look like in terms of the outputs? Well, hopefully, you've heard a bit of a thread already. I mean, we've talked about actually just asking the business what works for them, which is a very very simple thing to say, but not enough organisations do that. So whether it was which employee resource group do you want to create or what do you want to spend your freedom pot money on? We're, we're, we're asking the business for their opinion and, and almost putting it in their hands. Um, so a so real sense of changing that ownership that mindset away from the, the yeah, HR yeah. team to being owned by managers and employees. Yeah, so and again, and, the, and, the, and the, yeah, definitely, and the next chunk is that we've taken the data from things like the uh, engagement survey and, and, and other data that we've got, and we found that one thing, for example, was um, we, people said that maybe we didn't work as flexibly as we could. So we thought that was a prime opportunity to actually create a product around flexible working, which, again, is a mindset shift because if you're working in, a, in, in an HR or a people team, that doesn't sound like a product flexible no. working. It's a, it's a policy. It's a yes. hard yeah. bit of paper yeah. that says you can or can't do anything. <laughs> so it was a really good one to use as a first product. Um, and we, again, tried to, and you know, we, 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 some people in product might look at us and smile slightly, but we're trying to use the language of the business yeah. to say, okay, th this is how we want to create a product. We work with the product team to run design sprints. Yeah. So we get people in from the business. We have a hypothesis. We work through the hypothesis. We come out with a, uh, a, a product we want to trial. Um, and in the case of flexible working, literally the product is a, a set of four guidelines of what you, what, you, what you can do around the concept of flexible working, which is what we call work your way. So the product is work your way. And it's now been in place for about six to nine months. So we'd, we'd, we're holding retrospectives with the organisation. Again, we're doing it that way, so to your point about shelf life. Um, and we're looking at what we can do next around that product. But the, so the shift for us as a people team is, is not thinking, A, that we have all the answers and the answers are great. Not being yeah. really, really beholden to rigid policy or processes. Obviously, within this, there's that legal framework we all have to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, not. Really. <laughs> there's, a re there's a framework we have to operate in. And, um, and, and then, again, just saying to the business, well, what works for you? And what works for one part of the business doesn't work for another. So when you're creating that product, it's, um, as I say, that set of guidelines has been really, really useful for someone in technology to be able to use differently to someone in a customer service who may be a bit more beholden to ours, for example. So that's, that's one of the things that was really successful. I think the business is getting there with us, mostly, 
Um, but what we're finding difficult, and I think maybe the business is finding difficult, is that fact that they, they do still look to us for some consistency. Yeah. But we're trying to create products that work for all. Yeah. And that consistency isn't always necessarily there. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're finding that quite hard as well. I, I do think that, that that's definitely one of the challenges. And we, we know this, right? Because, you know, people are complex. On the one hand, you want freedom to operate and to do stuff. But at the same point in time, you also want people to tell you what to do occasionally. And that conflict that exists with, within individuals, you see play out when you try and make some of that, some of that shift, I think. Um, it's also a shift for the people team and for the people yeah. function. You know, another product that's in development right now is a, is, is a set of behaviors around leadership. So we're just taking a look at, you know, this inclusive culture that we're building what are inclusive leadership behaviours? What are our expectations of leaders now in a more inclusive culture? What behaviours do we want to see from them so that we can give our leaders some guidance around what we expect of them um, as, we, as we shift our culture to become more inclusive? And again, that's a product that's in development from within our team. And there's a couple of, of um, folks in the team who are leading that. And they've gone into design sprints with, again, consumers, our colleagues, you know, leaders and people who are customers of leadership and ask them about behaviours and sort of develop that into an MVP, a minimal viable product. But one of the challenges we have is, you know, even within our own team, um, quite rightly, a number of us would want to input to that, not least me, right? So, I mean, we all have that challenge of saying, oh, wow, if we're coming up with a set of leadership behaviours, you know, the people partners, for example, and the people leadership team, we'll all have a point of view on that, right? We'll all want to contribute. And actually, we have to take ourselves out of that as well. It is a challenge for us to say, okay, let's let the, the project leads that we've appointed within the team go and develop this and co-create this with the, the users and the consumers and the customers of that framework, we have to be prepared to and let go. that could be very threatening for us. Oh, it is. You know, it's our not... role as leadership yeah, yeah. development experts. <laughs> That's uh, right. HR professionals. And, um, and uh, that can be, you know, we can be quite an anxious about letting go like that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'll be really honest about, you know, even my own reaction when the team came back and said, here's the MVP, or here are the things that are coming through. I found myself wanting to, to challenge, you know, and sort of say, but really, shouldn't it be this? And, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's nature, right? So it's yeah. quite hard for us when you're making that commitment to do that to, I think there's a balance, right? I'm not saying that it's not a legitimate point of view or input that I would have, but I just need to make sure that I'm conscious of balancing my input with what is quite some rigorous work, right? I yeah. mean, they spent days with multiple people in rooms getting to this point. Yeah. And you've got to believe that there's way more validity in that perspective than in the perspective of a single individual. Yeah. And I think that's what's hard for people functions, actually, when you're starting to, to make this shift. And, and finally, just to really kind of pick up on that point, but any other learnings, you know, in the kind of the slightly different approach that you've taken, either the product approach or putting stuff into, uh, you know, much more into the hands of employees and, and leaders? Is there anything that you think, if we were doing this again, we'd do it in a slightly different way? I don't know if we do it in a slightly different way, but I think we're asking for a lot of the businesses' time. Because we're, we're pulling people into design sprints or having, com having a lot of engagement with individuals. Um, and we're getting some goodwill for that. 
but we've got talent management come up, we want to look at performance management, we look at all yeah. these areas of products yeah. and we're using a lot of the business's time. And I think that we need to balance that between wanting to create this massive suite of products that's going to be really successful, but actually letting people just get used to that way of working and go and do what they're here to do as well. That's one thing I, I would say. Um, so are you kind of looking at uh, having fewer products on the slate then at any one time? Um, I think that's probably what we need to. We've come to that conclusion quite recently, actually. Yeah. We had a, we had a, an offsite where we were looking at what we were planning for Q2, let alone the rest of the year. Um, and I, you know, panicked mildly when I thought about it. But it also, yeah. you can see the time on the business, and you can see the overlap between all our parts of the people team as well, and mm -hmm. how much pressure there is to, to to deliver all that. When actually, you could probably spin it out over the course of a bit longer yeah. within, within the yeah. year. So not necessarily doing anything differently, just try not to do things too quickly um, or just do some, some smaller bits yeah. instead of a whole performance management let's just try a little bit about feedback for example yeah. rather than yeah. creating this monolithic mm. thing that yeah, actually that might, might, might be a bit older yeah. Uh, yeah. have a short shelf life yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean the other observation that i have around it is i think i probably made too much of an assumption that managers in the business would embrace the concept you know that we just want HR to get out of the way and let us get on and do what what we want to do and that's not entirely universally true um actually there there are many people who do value the service that's yeah. provided as as we would know right and yeah. um you know I do think that that as a team we provide good support and good good service um to the business so you know you have to understand where um individual managers or individual teams or, or certain parts of the business are on that that yeah. journey yeah. and be careful not to because we got excited about a new way of working yeah. and a new vision for the people function and a more disruptive way of of being that we don't suddenly just flip to that and sort of pull away that blanket of support because yeah. it's a bit, it's a hard one, right? I mean, the challenge for, for us as a team is in order to spend our time developing products and creating employee experiences the way in which we want, we're only a small team, right? This is a small business. We're, we're not a massive team. So to spend our time doing that means we've, we've got to stop doing some of the handholding and more service oriented work. But if you're pulling away that support, the reality is the managers need the products that are built in a way that allows them to self-serve themselves. But we need to pull away the support to build the product. And that is that, I mean, that's the scenario that I think we find ourselves yeah. in. It's a very difficult yeah. place to be sometimes to say, and that's we're what, taking this know, away because we've got to believe in the promise. Many, right? many service organizations are going through, aren't they? Yeah. On the one hand, you've got this high touch, labor intensive, uh, business that's the legacy business you need to move to something that looks and feels very different but how do you manage that when you've only got a small team to to yeah. get you there and and some of the things that we see is is organizations or HR teams being really really clear about what they can stop with minimal impact and being quite ruthless about that and so the performance management piece or the annual engagement survey whatever it might be and and just saying, look, you know, we've just got to take time back wherever we can because this other stuff's too important, and we've got to get out of this vicious circle. And we, you know, we've got to do something that, that at least gives us frees us up. Kiva, Alex, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it, and this amazing building you've got here in London. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.